Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 5, but before we do that, before we read the passage this morning, I'd like you to imagine with me that it's the year 2003, not too long ago. You're an infantry soldier. This might be difficult for some women here, although women can now be infantry soldiers, apparently, in our military. But um, at this time, they could not. But uh, imagine you are an infantry soldier in the midst of battle, fighting your way through the streets of Baghdad. You're just one soldier among many soldiers in your platoon. Your platoon is just one among the many platoons that make up your company. Your company is just one company that makes up your entire battalion. And your entire battalion is just one battalion in your entire infantry brigade. When it comes down to it, your life is very small. It's a very insignificant, almost insignificant part of the overall plan. Despite what the army would have you believe, you don't feel like an army of one. You feel like one in the midst of a great army. Now, if you've ever seen on movies or videos what these battles in Iraq or Afghanistan are like, then you know that these Middle Eastern cities all look very similar. They're full of buildings that all look the same. Dirt streets that all look the same. No street signs, no real distinguishing landmarks. In fact, it's even hard to tell who the enemy is when there are civilians crowding the streets, some of whom are just as dangerous as enemy combatants. From your vantage point on the ground, things seem so confusing, so foreign, so frightening. If it were not for your buddies next to you, you would be frozen with fear. But then you hear something that gives you hope. You hear a helicopter above you. You know that inside that helicopter is the general. You've heard about the general. He has a bird's eye view of the entire city. He knows the master plan. In fact, he's the one who came up with this battle plan in the first place. He's an expert in military tactics and intelligence. He knows how to attack the enemy in the most effective way, and he knows precisely how the enemy will respond. He knows the objective of the mission. He has calculated exactly what it will take to accomplish it. And for a brief moment in the midst of the battle, you think to yourself, man, I wonder what it would be like if I could communicate with the general. I know I'm just a lowly private. I know I have no right to speak to him. I know that if I perished, the war would go on without me unaffected, but I'm so scared, so confused, and so desperate, and I know he would be able to help me if there was only some way for me to talk to him. Friends, whether we realize it or not, we are in the midst of a war. We fight battles Every day, battles against our flesh, battles against spiritual forces of evil, battles against lies and doubt and temptation and false worldviews, battles against a demonic culture that is opposed to the authority of God, and battles against Satan himself. We are in the midst of a war, but we have access to the general. And he is no mere man, he is the creator of all things. He is the one who holds the king's heart in his hand. He guides it wherever he wills. He is the one who is in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. 
And he wants you to talk to him. But not only does this general know the battle plan, see, not only does God give orders and tell you how to win the fight, when he speaks to you, he creates in you exactly what you need to survive. Because you see, in the midst of battle, knowing how to succeed in the battle won't do you any good if you don't have the courage to carry out the battle plan. But when we communicate with God, he actually gives us encouragement and comfort and strength and power and faith. Our God is no earthly general. He actually changes our hearts. Church, prayer is indispensable. Today, I want us to hear from Christ himself on the subject of prayer. If we're going to follow Christ in prayer, then there is no better place to start than the very words of Jesus actually teaching his disciples how to pray. Throughout Christians throughout church history have expounded on the Lord's Prayer because in it we find hidden treasure. It is said that the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, we unlock the riches of fellowship with God. As we look today at Christ's teaching on prayer from the Sermon on the Mount, my hope is that we will see that following Christ in prayer means joining him in communion with God. Following Christ in prayer means joining him in communion with God. There's three points to my sermon. Uh, I hope that to to show you these three things, we're going to look at the motivation for prayer, the hope of prayer, and the form of prayer. The motivation for prayer, the hope of prayer, and the form of prayer. So let's begin by looking at Matthew 6, verse 5. This is Jesus teaching. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus turns his attention to the issue of practicing our righteousness for our own personal glory. So skip, uh, go up for just a minute to chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, For you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. Then in verse 2, he addresses the issue of giving to the needy in order to be seen by others. See, many of the religious leaders were doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. When they would give alms to the poor, they would make a big production of it. They would make sure everyone knew what they were doing so that others would see them and praise their good deeds. 
Jesus says that that worldly, man-centered praise that you're getting, that's all the reward you're going to get. In other words, they will not be rewarded by God in the age to come. Then he turns his attention to the issue of prayer in verse 5, and he gives the same warning. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street quarters that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word hypocrites in this passage uh, refers to actors in a play who would wear different masks to play different roles. So Jesus is saying that these religious leaders are trying to pretend to be more spiritual than they are. They put on a mask in front of people because they love the glory that comes from man. They love to be praised and honored, and they love when other people follow them. They don't really want to pray. What they want is to be seen praying. They are not concerned for God's kingdom. They want others to think they are concerned for God's kingdom. Their highest concern is self-perception. How are they being perceived by others? Do we see this kind of behavior in our own day? Probably, but honestly, it's hard to tell, right? It's difficult to see in the hearts of other people. In fact, we can't see into the hearts of other people. It's impossible to know without absolute certainty the reasons why someone is praying in public. Jesus knows because he knows the heart. Sometimes it might look as though someone is praying in order to bring glory to himself, but we don't really know. So let's not look at others. Let's ask ourselves this question. What is my motivation for prayer? Do I find it easy and exciting to pray when I'm around other people and yet boring and painstaking when I'm alone? Do I neglect private prayer and then try to make up for it when I pray in public around others? Do I try to sound more sophisticated theologically astute when I pray so that others won't suspect that I rarely pray on my own. What is your motivation for praying? We see in this passage an improper motivation for prayer and a proper motivation for prayer. We should not pray in order to be praised by others. Instead, we are to pray in secret. Why? Because God sees us in secret And he will reward us. You see, when we pray to be seen by others, what do we really want? We want to draw others to ourselves. But when we pray in secret, our hearts can only be drawn to God. The proper motivation for prayer is communion with God. Jesus is concerned with the attitude of your heart when you pray. So what we're not saying is that we should never pray in public. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's, saying. he's not saying, look, you can never pray around anyone else. You can only pray by yourself in your room. Um, what he's saying is, what he's getting at is the heart attitude behind the prayer. Jesus prays in public. The disciples pray in pub- public 
throughout um, the book of Acts. So the issue is not praying in public. The issue is the attitude of the heart behind your prayer. So we have to ask ourselves, why are we saying what we're saying? Why are our prayers so long? Why am I straining so hard to say just the right thing? Is this how a child talks to his father? Prayer is meant to be communication between you and God not something to be used for our own personal gain. Even the children's catechism asks the question, what is prayer? What is prayer? Talking to God. We don't pray so that others will see us. We pray so that God will see us. We long to be with Him. We long to be drawn to Him. So our motivation for prayer, a proper motivation for prayer, is communion with God. Is that your motivation? Do you long to be with God? When you think about prayer, is it just a duty? Is it just something that you know is there and it's just like this nagging thing like, ah, I just, man, I should be doing that. I know I should be doing that more. I know I need to get up earlier I know I need to dedicate more time to this. Is it just a thing that we need to check off a list? Or is your motivation for prayer, man, I want to talk with God. I want to commune with the Almighty. I'm in the midst of a war here, and I have the access to the general, the one who knows all. Why would we neglect such a gift But not only does Jesus give us a proper motivation for prayer, he gives us hope in prayer. It's one thing to know and to acknowledge, okay, God knows I need to go to him, I need to pray, but why? What's the point? When I say hope, what I mean is confidence. When we pray, what confidence do we have that God even cares What hope do you have that he will listen? What hope do you have that he will actually meet your need or answer your request? Well, let's let Jesus answer in verses 7 and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Here, Jesus is contrasting the way the pagans pray with the way his disciples should pray. When pagans pray, they they thought they had to work themselves up into a frenzy. We see this even in our own day today with pagan religions. The more words they used, the more lively the expression, the louder they shouted, the more they danced around, the longer the prayer went, the more likely their pagan gods would give them what they wanted. But Jesus assures us that we don't need to worry about that because God already knows what we need before we ask him. Now think about this for a moment. Jesus is taking a huge theological truth, the omniscience of God, right? God is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows everything about you He knows everything about the universe. He knows everything about your situation. And he's bringing it to bear on something as simple and practical 
as your prayer life. He's saying, God is omniscient. He knows everything. Therefore, you don't have to worry about getting him to listen to you. He will listen. You don't need to convince him to listen to you. We don't have to dance around. We don't have to work ourselves up into a frenzy. We don't have to keep repeating the same words over and over and work ourselves up in order to try to get God's attention. He's already listening. He knows and he cares for you. God knows you and he cares for you. He wants you to talk to him. Think about this. A father who loves his children does not need to be convinced to pay attention to his children when they speak to him. Unless I'm the father and I don't pay very good attention to my kids sometimes, and so they have to convince me. Um, But I'm a sinful earthly father. God does not need to be convinced uh, for for us to, to listen to us. I was thinking about this this week Uh, just with my own kids. And if you've been around Nella for more than three minutes, you know that she has no problem talking. Uh, She talks constantly. And so it's very easy to sort of just, you know, tune her out at times. Um, Again, God does not do that to us. Uh, I'm a sinful earthly father. But this still had a very profound effect on me this week, as I was thinking about this, man, what is Jesus saying here when he's, he's, he's saying, okay, God knows what we need before you ask. Okay, that's great. But what he's saying is God knows and he cares. He doesn't need to be convinced to listen to us. And so I was thinking about Nella, my, all of my kids, and putting them to bed uh, every night. Uh, I try to pray with each of them individually as we tuck them in, just to sh- say a short prayer. And it's just one of the sweetest times for me, especially when I get to Nella, because she's the oldest and she loves to talk, and she knows if she can get me talking at bedtime, she can stay up later, you know, just get dad to talking about the Bible or like things that excite me with her. And so, um, you know, just a couple weeks ago, I was putting our kids to bed, and we have five of them. It takes a long time. Um, But, you know, Nella, she asked me a question. She said, Daddy, why do you love me so much? And so, um, she knows just the right question to ask to get me talking a lot. And so I started telling her all the reasons why I love her, you know, that, and God created you in his image um, to, to glorify him. I love you because of that. I love you because you're my daughter. He gave you to me uh, to take care of. I love you because I've seen you grow in the ways that you have, have just loved your brothers and sisters. And I, I love your sense of humor. You're so funny and you're so fun and all these things, all these ways, these reasons I love her. And then, and then she's, she started telling me, Dada, here's all the reasons I love you. You, you take care of me. You, you take me for dates you buy me uh, the, the toys that I want, all these things that, that she loves about me. And this is it's just a sweet time. And I, I'm sitting here thinking about this this week. No one, she didn't need to convince me to listen to her. Man, there's nothing like listening to your children when they open their hearts to you. I mean, when my kids start talking to me about the things that they're thinking about spiritually, what's going on in their hearts, man, I am... I'm there. 
I'm engaged. I'm with them. I love it. And if we, as earthly mothers and fathers, if that's the case for us, man, and we're sinners, how much more does God long to hear from us, to hear what's on our hearts? Jesus says it this way in Matthew 7, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? And God wants to hear from us. Our hope, our confidence in prayer is that God knows us and he cares for us and he wants to hear from us. What greater hope do we have than that? All we have to do is talk to him. But how do we do it? You might be thinking, okay, I get it. Prayer is important. I need to pray. I want to pray, but I need help. I don't know how. Have no fear because Jesus takes us even one step further. He actually gives us a form of prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Look in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven. Now, this is typically called the invocation or the address of the Lord's Prayer. Most of us address God as Father without giving it much thought. But let's slow down for a minute and really think about what Jesus is teaching us about prayer. He tells us to address God as Father. This has become so common for us to do that that we tend to forget the significance of calling God our Father. How are we even able to address God as our Father? When we call God our Father, we are saying something profound. We are claiming a gospel privilege. The fact is, we have no right in and of ourselves to call God our Father. Yes, God is the creator of all people, but he is not the Father of all people. To call God Father is to claim a standing of sonship. God can only be our Father if we are his sons and daughters. But how do we come to gain this standing before God? only because of our union with Christ, right? This is why Martin Luther said that to address God as Father is synonymous with praying in Jesus' name. Without Christ's death on the cross for us, without the debt of our sin being paid, without being united with Christ by faith in his death and resurrection, we have no basis to call God our Father. Without the work of Christ, we are not God's children, We are his enemies. And the only way for that to change is by the sovereign action of a compassionate, adopting father. God adopts us. He is our father because he pursued us. Because of the finished work of Christ, we are united with Christ, brought into God's family as his sons and daughters That is why we address him as father. So here we see in the opening address of the Lord's prayer, a gospel-centered focus. 
We cannot even address God as Father apart from the saving work of Christ on our behalf. So let me ask you this. Can you call God as your Father? Is God your Father? Have you been adopted? When you think about praying and calling on God as your Father, what is the basis of you calling Him Father? Is it, I can call him father because I'm basically a good person. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Surely God is my father. Surely he'll be kind to me. Our standing before God rests in Christ alone. If you cannot call God your father today, I call you to turn from your sin, flee to Christ, put your faith and hope in him, be united with him and brought into God's family. Moving on through the Lord's Prayer, the next line, hallowed be your name. To hallow something is to honor it as holy. So what Jesus is teaching us here is that we are to pray that God's name and his glory would be honored. But not only in a general sense, but Jesus tells us to pray, hallowed be your name. Another way to say this would be to literally say, God, your name is holy. We typically call this praise. Jesus is telling us that an essential component of our prayers should be praise, worship, adoration, exaltation. Praise and worship is not just a musical genre. It's something that should be a regular part of our prayers as well. To hallow God's name is to keep it holy. It means that we reflect on God's glory, his majesty, his nature and character, and we proclaim those attributes back to him. There are tons of examples of this in scripture, but one is from Psalm 104. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. I'm sorry, that's Psalm 99, not Psalm 104. For those of you who have the Psalms memorized. Um, We read that. There's a lot of words there. Justice, righteousness, equity, holy. Now, if we're going to praise God for his attributes and his character, then we actually need to know what these words mean, right? It's one thing to read them in the Psalms. It's another thing to understand what we're reading and to pray those things back to him. What does it mean that God is great? He loves equity and justice. What does it mean for him to execute justice and righteousness? What does it mean for him to be holy? These are attributes of God's character that we must study and meditate upon. And think about the awesome privilege it is to meditate on the creator of the universe who has revealed himself to us. If we're gonna praise God rightly in prayer, then we need to develop a biblical vocabulary so that we can not only accurately know him, but accurately praise him as well. So when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he's telling us, praise the Lord. Praise him. 
worship him, extol his greatness. If you need help with that, go to the Psalms. It's all there. Now quickly, look back at verse 9. Notice the first word, our, our Father. That one little word, our, is very important. Notice it's plural. It's not my Father in heaven. This is important because we are not called to praise God merely by ourselves. We're called to do it in community. This is why the next petition is your kingdom come. The kingdom of God is wherever God is king. And even though many people in Jesus' day thought the Messiah would come and establish an earthly kingdom, the New Testament makes clear, and even the Sermon on the Mount makes clear, that Jesus establishes his kingdom not through an earthly rule by setting up a throne and invading nations and claiming territory, but by calling people out of spiritual darkness and setting himself on the throne of their hearts. It's through this spiritual reign that Jesus brings his kingdom to light on this earth. Yes, there will come a day when Jesus will return with his angels and establish a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be a physical reign, but until that day, his kingdom comes as the power of the gospel goes out and by the power of the Holy Spirit transforms hearts from stone to hearts of flesh. God's desire is that he might be praised, that his name might be exalted by us and all people. When we pray that God's kingdom would come, we're asking him to establish his spiritual reign over the hearts of his people. We're asking that the works of the gospel would be extended beyond our own hearts into the hearts of our neighbors, those that live in close proximity to us all the way out to the thousands of unreached people groups throughout the world. We should regularly be praying that the work of the gospel would be fulfilled and that people from all over the world would worship him. When we pray your kingdom come, that's what we're praying for, that the gospel would be preached to all people and that the light of the gospel would shine on their hearts and they would be born again. But not only does God desire to be worshipped by us and all people, he also desires to fulfill his will. This is why the third petition says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 10. In order to understand this petition, we need to understand what God's will is. What are we asking for when when we are praying that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, there's a couple things. In its most foundational sense, it simply means what we've already stated. God wills that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would worship and adore him. That is, in fact, what we are told is going on in heaven all the time. So if we're going to ask that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then what we're we're asking for is that people would worship God down here just as the angels do in heaven. But... There are many, many other ways we can pray for God's will to be done. We know what God's will is because he's told us in his word. There are innumerable ways we can be praying for God's will to be done. Here's a few examples of what I mean. We know it's God's will that our church be unified in one Lord and one faith. So we pray for that. 
We know that's God's will. We pray for it. We know it's God's will that we pursue holiness and purity. So we pray for those that we know are fighting against sin and temptation in their walk with Christ. We know it's God's will that nations would be established on God's principles of truth, justice, and righteousness. So we pray for our leaders and politicians that they would govern our nation in a way that does not restrict religious liberty, but allows the most freedom for it. We know that's God's will, so we pray for it. We know that true and undefiled religion is to care for orphans and widows, so we pray for widows and orphans in our community and ask how we can best care for them. We know that God wills that every human life be treasured and treated with dignity, especially the lives of children and those who are the most vulnerable. Therefore, we pray that the atrocities of the abortion industry in America would be seen for what they are, that our nation would wake up and take notice that millions of babies have been murdered since 1973, and that God's judgment will rightly fall on those who practice, permit, and sanction such things. So we pray urgently that lives would be saved, babies would be born and not destroyed. We know that's God's will, so we pray for it. So you see, we know what God's will is if we know his word. So let's be people who pray regularly that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's not all Jesus wants us to ask for. He goes on in the fourth petition to tell us that we are to pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. This petition now addresses our own personal needs. The first three petitions focus primarily on God's character, his will, his big overall goals in creation and providence. But here, Christ brings it down to us. Here, Christ teaches us to actually ask for what he knows we need. The fourth petition is usually what most of our prayers almost always consist of. This is the kind of prayer we're probably most accustomed to, asking God for things. For many Christians, prayer is, the, is, prayer is the means we use to get what we want. Now, we certainly don't want to perceive God as some kind of cosmic Santa Claus who just bestows gifts on us whenever we ask. But I also don't want us to feel ashamed or afraid to ask God for what we need. In fact... Right here, we're told to ask for things. God wants us to ask him for our daily needs, for food, clothing, shelter, work, income. Those things are included in this term, daily bread. So here are a few observations about this petition. Our daily bread includes our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. Jesus himself says that he is the bread of life. So before we just jump into asking for physical things, um, we should pray that our souls would be satisfied and content in Christ. I believe that many of the physical things we think we need would seem less important if we were actually finding our soul's contentment 
in Christ. If we actually were content in Christ, maybe some of these things that we think we need wouldn't seem so important. So our daily bread does include our spiritual needs. The second observation I want to make about this petition is that this is not name-it-claim-it theology. Jesus is not telling us that we can speak things into existence. If you want that new car or new house or new job, just tell Jesus what you want, claim it as your own, and wait for it to happen. That is not what Jesus is telling us. We are not told to claim anything here. We are told to ask that our daily needs be met. Now, of course, this begs the question, okay, so what about asking for things beyond that, right? Am I allowed to ask for things that I desire, things that I want, things that maybe don't fall into this category of need? Let me first answer with one word, yes. God wants us to ask for anything insofar as it is agreeable to his will. But how do we know if what we're asking for is agreeable to his will? Well, sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes we don't. But there are three principles that I would like to give you from J.I. Packer that I think can help us think through this. So when we think about asking for things in prayer, these three principles were very, very helpful for me. I, I, get, them, I get them from Tim Keller, who got them from J.I. Packer. So I'm going to be quoting now from a book by, T- by Tim Keller called Prayer, but he's just quoting from J.I. Packer. So, um, so these three principles, I think, will help us think through, okay, what does it mean to ask for things? How can we do that uh, in a way that is good and honoring to Christ? So here's the first principle Packer gives us. When it comes to asking for something, one, we should lay before God as part of our prayer, the reasons why we think that what we ask for is the best thing. Does that make sense? We should give reasons why we think what we are asking for is the best thing. This means embedding theological reasoning in all of our prayers. It means that rather than simply running down a quick list of things we want, we should reflect on what we want in light of all we know from Scripture about the things that delight and grieve God, in light of what we know about His salvation and what He wants for the world. So when we ask for things, we should be able to give reasons to God for why we think this is the best thing. It means we should argue for it, right? And if you don't have good arguments... You you might want to rethink that, what you're asking for. The second thing, the second principle. When When we make our desires known, we should explicitly tell God that if he wills something different from what we are asking 
We know it will be better, and it is that that we really want him to do. Does that make sense? When you're asking for something, doing it in a way that says, Lord, from what I can see, this would be a really good thing. But I don't have all the information. I'm not the general. I just, I'm just down here. I have one vantage point. I think this is good. I, I, this makes sense to me. But man, you know what's best. And if you will something different, I want to be content with that. I want that because you, what you are going to do is better. It will always be better than what I want, even if this makes sense to me. So that's the second principle. If we cannot say that, then our desires are probably competing with God's, or we are asking for something out of selfish motives. The third principle is this. We should ask ourselves this question. Am I the one thing that really needs to change in this situation? So even though you might be asking for something outside of you, Lord, this circumstance, change the circumstance, um, give me this thing that I want, a job, a relationship, um, a material possession, even though we're asking for things outside of us, maybe the real issue is something in your own heart. Am I the one that really needs to change here? Many times our prayers are answered not by us getting what we ask for, but by God actually changing our hearts so that we want something different. Man, that's happened to me. I'm just pursuing this, this thing, whatever it is. I've, I've, got, I've got this idea, and it's, it's, it's not wrong. It's not evil. It's not sinful. It's what makes sense to me. It looks good. But man, as I pray about it, as I seek the Lord, he just, man, my desires change. He just begins to move me in a different direction. And, and until I look back years later and I think, man, why would I, I was going this way. And now I'm way over here. And, and this is better. And God knew what he was doing. So the next time you are asking God for something, try to do those three things. Tell him why you want it. Give reasons and arguments for it. Two, tell him if he wills something different that he knows best, you will trust his providence. And three, ask yourself whether you might be the one who needs to change. Moving on to the next petition, the fifth request. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This fifth request tells us that we should pray for peaceful and holy relationships with other people. As we pray, we are to reflect on the fact that our sins have been forgiven by God. This is something that we do not deserve. Therefore, we pray that we would have the opportunity to extend forgiveness to others. Jesus teaches us that our relationship with God is intimately tied to our relationship with other people. One author put it this way, if we have not seen our sin and sought radical forgiveness from God, we will be unable to forgive and to seek the good of those who have wronged us. This means that we should pray that our hearts would be softened towards specific people 
that we have a hard time loving. Perhaps you've been offended or hurt by someone in this room even. Perhaps there is someone here you have a hard time getting along with because of conflict. Jesus tells us to seek forgiveness so that we might forgive them. My hope is that there will be a culture of forgiveness in this church. And I don't want conflict or hard feelings or disunity to divide us. When we have been forgiven so much, why would we not be able to forgive one another? Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts so that we can forgive our debtors. The sixth and final request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this sixth request has always seemed a little strange to me. Why are we asking God to not lead us into temptation? Why would God want to lead us into temptation? But first, we have to recognize that not all temptation is wrong. In fact, Jesus was tempted, and temptation is a normal, even sanctifying part of following Christ. Without temptation, we would have no opportunity to resist temptation and grow in our ability to do so. So what is Jesus telling us to pray for here? He's saying that we should pray that we would not willfully walk into temptation and that God would deliver us from our evil desires. We all know what these sinful temptations are like. They start with just a fleeting thought. Perhaps we barely even notice it. But then it creeps back in with more frequency, this tempting thought. It begins to stay a little longer in our minds. It grows roots. But the turning point comes when the opportunity to act on that temptation avails itself. Now, not only are we tempted, we have opportunity as well. And we walk into that. Because we did not fight against those first fleeting thoughts way back there, it becomes almost impossible to escape that temptation later on. Here Jesus says that we should plead with God to deliver us from sinful temptations. Every sin begins with a thought that we have failed to take captive Therefore, we must be on our guard at all times, praying without ceasing that we may not be overcome with temptation. This last request, more than any other, is a stark reminder that we are constantly at war. The battle that we are engaged in is waged primarily in our own hearts and minds. This is why throughout the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is concerned first and foremost with the desires and the affections of our hearts. This is why Jesus doesn't just give us a form. He gives us a form, but he gives us reasons. He gives us the motivation for prayer. He gives us the hope of prayer. And even in the form, he gives us the character of God revealed. Because praying isn't just about saying the right words. It's about the attitude of our hearts, taking captive those sinful thoughts, making them obedient to Christ. So 
I hope you've noticed that right here in these verses in the Lord's Prayer, which might seem so common and so even childish at times, that Jesus has given us so many principles and guidelines for how we ought to pray. First, he gives us the proper motivation for prayer. Next, he fills us with a God-centered hope in our prayer, a confidence that God knows us, he loves us, he cares for us. And third, he gives us a form of prayer that we should follow. And even in the Lord's Prayer, we see that prayer begins with who God is, his nature, his character, then it moves down to his will and his purpose for his creation and his people, then it moves down to the individual and our relationships with one another, then it moves down even more into the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Man, we would do well to model our prayers after the form that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 6. I was thinking about how to apply this sermon, and I hope that you've seen that the entire sermon is application. I mean, I hope that you, you've written things down and you've remembered what we've, we've seen and you're going to put these things into practice. I mean, I hope you use the Lord's Prayer as a model for your own prayer life. I hope you, you praise God. I hope you uh, confess your sins. I hope you pray for his glory and his kingdom uh, to come. So my one application point here at the end is simply this. Pray. Pray. Husbands. Pray with your wives. Parents, pray with your kids. Kids, pray with your brothers and sisters. Pray when you wake up. Pray before bed. Pray before meals. Pray after meals. Pray before you leave the house. Pray when you get to work. Pray when you're in the shower. Pray before you speak. Pray standing up. Pray sitting down. Pray lying down and on your knees. Oh, that we would be a church full of people who pray without ceasing. So today, join with me and declare your dependence upon God, your heavenly Father. We need him desperately. And remember this, he knows you, he cares for you, and he wants to hear from you.